This morning we are beginning a new sermon series on life in the Spirit for this Pentecost Sunday and Pentecost season over the next few weeks. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8 during for the duration of that time. Um, so if you want to go and begin turning there in, in your Bibles, you're welcome to. Um, we're going to be on page 909 if you happen to grab one of the guest Bibles there. Um, I'm going to be taking a little bit different approach um, in, in that I'm not going to be starting in verse 1 and then working my way through the chapter. I, instead, I, I feel led to start about halfway in and uh, preach the sermon this morning from uh, around verse 17, the second half of verse 17 down through verse 27, um, and let that passage and this message sort of set the stage uh, for the rest of the series over the coming weeks. So look, if you would, here at Romans 8, verse 17, uh, the second half of verse 17, um, there is a misprint in the bulletin. That was my fault. It's not Jessica's fault. Uh, we're not going all the way to verse 30. We're going to end there at verse 27. And we'll come back to the, the rest of those verses and the verses before uh, in later messages. If we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. Now the theme of the section here, well there's lots of themes, but the one that, that leaps off the pages to me and seems to be the predominant one that, that we find is this theme of glory and suffering. And that is a recurring theme that we find throughout the New Testament. You don't have to turn your, your, your Bible too many pages back or too many pages forward to find this theme repeated, especially in the writings of Paul. Now concerning this, these, these ideas of suffering and glory, we can say on the, on the onset here a couple of things. Number one, we can say that for the Christian to share in one is to share in the other. Look there in verse 17 again. If we are to share his glory, there's an if then here. If we are to share his glory, then we must also share his suffering. To share in one is to share in the other. But secondly, is this, that even though suffering and glory for the Christian go hand in hand, they cannot really ever be compared. The very next uh, verse there, verse 18 says, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. So they go together, but they cannot be compared. One is light and momentary. One is eternal and far outweighs them all. One belongs to the present, the other to the future. 
And you and I find ourselves in this tension, don't we? This tension between the present and the future, or you could even say the past and the future. The, the present tension of, of what is and yet what will be. Now to better understand this tension, Paul will speak in verse 19 of creation's experience of it. And it's an interesting passage. There's a lot there. I don't know if we're going to have time to get to all of it. But at the very least, we see that for creation, that is the created order that, that is issued forth by the word of God and is sustained by his power, the very thing that you and I find ourselves living in and, and participating in and being a part of, creation itself, we're told, is experiencing a frustration. Did you ever think of creation like that? That creation is frustrated. Look at verse 20. It says, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. If we were to, to dig a little more deeply into the original language and look at perhaps maybe a little more literal uh, translation of that section there, it would say something more like this. Creation was subjected to frustration. There's a beautiful Greek word, metoyotes. You may have heard that word before. And if you have, maybe you remember its meaning. It means something along the lines of an emptiness or a futility. Think of Ecclesiastes, the, the, the vanity. All is vanity. There's this idea that, there's the, that creation, everything in creation is broken. And it has this inability to reach a goal or to achieve results. It's frustrated. Now, once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, I was actually a pretty decent baseball player. I know, it's hard to believe, but it's true. My 12-year-old year of Little League, it was the last year of Little League, um, I was able to, to help my team win the league championship, and uh, oh, by the way, we were the black team, and, and in, in that part of the country, in that, uh, in that league, uh, local businesses would sponsor the teams, and so we were sponsored by Hall's Funeral Home. How about that? How would you like to be sponsored by, we were the black team. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but uh, we, we, we had this little saying, and we were just kids, don't judge me, but it was, um, you kill them, we bury them. I don't know what, what, what that even means and applied to baseball, but we thought it was so cool, and uh, so we were the black team, and we won the championship that year, and it was, it was special because our coach, his name was Larry Shortridge, and Larry had been a, a Little League coach for 20, 30 years, and it was his last season, and we were able to, to give him a league championship. It was so exciting. And we were looking ahead to a really promising all-star season, and we won several games against some really good teams, and we, we didn't know how far we could go, but we knew we were going to make a really good run at it. But our, our last game, uh, I was scheduled to pitch, and as I was warming up, I pulled something in my back, something that had me so, so uh, debilitated, and I was in so much pain, I had to sit down, and I ended up missing almost the entire game. And my team that was relying on my arm and my bat at the plate, well, they lost. I'm not saying it was because I didn't get to play, but it sure didn't help that I didn't get to play. And I'll tell you, as I sat there, broken and unable to, to accomplish our goals, I was frustrated. I was frustrated. Creation is frustrated because things aren't right. And all of this because of God's curse for Adam's sin. You and I feel that frustration too, don't we? We feel that frustration. We have inherited from Adam not only a world that is broken, which is why we have things like thorns, right? And entropy, things are breaking down all the time. It's why it rains on Pentecost Sunday when we're scheduled to have baptisms. It's why we have spiders. Thanks, Adam, for the spiders. It's, it's all joking aside, 
and making light of this, but you and I are in a broken world and we've inherited that from our ancestor. And we've not only inherited a world that is broken, we have inherited a human nature that is broken. It's broken. It's corrupted. It's not what it was intended to be. And that is frustrating. And though God does not hold you and I as individuals morally culpable for the actions of someone else, nevertheless, you and I have received and experienced the results or the impact of someone else's sin. And that is a frustrating thing indeed. Creation is frustrated. But according to Paul, creation also hopes. Now, it's, it's funny because when, when the way Paul talks about it, it's, I believe the expression is personification, right? It's, it's to ascribe personal attributes to something that is a non-person. Paul is not saying that creation has a mind or a will or a soul. He's not saying that at all. Creation is, is not created in the image of God like you and I were. You and I are distinct within creation. So he's really using this as like a rhetorical device. He's making a point. And he's saying that creation looks forward to a freedom from death and decay. Creation is in need of a renewal, and creation is moving towards that renewal. And how do we know that is true? Well, we know it from God's word. I mean, go back into the Psalms and throughout the prophets and read the expressions that you find there pertaining to creation as it awaits the end. There's something that's going to happen that will result in the deserts blooming with wildlife and flowers. There's something that will happen one day where things domestic and things wild will coexist in peace. These are expressions that are describing a reality that is yet to come, and creation looks eagerly forward to that day. It waits. It longs. And in verse 22, it even groans. Groans. That's a specific word that refers to a particular type of groaning. And those of you ladies in here who have, have been blessed, well, and in some degrees cursed, with the pains of childbirth, know the types of groaning referred to here. Creation groans like a woman in labor. And there's perhaps no better picture of the status quo that we find ourselves in in the world than that. Now, admittedly, I have never given birth. I know that's shocking to you in the 21st century. But what was true for the last however many thousands of years remains true today that men cannot have children. I have never had a child. I wouldn't presume to know exactly what that is like, but I've been close to childbirth. Three times, in fact. Very close. I have felt in my hand the knuckle-crushing grip of a woman in labor. <laughs> I have felt by extension those pains. I've seen firsthand with my eyes and, and heard with my ears the challenges of what that might be like. But I've also seen the beautiful and the eager anticipation of new life. And that's creation today. In the throes of pain with an eye toward renewal. And Paul gives us this, the spirit-led illustration to make his deeper point. His point is, well, that's us too. 
the, the sons and the daughters of God, we, we are caught in that, that painful tension between what we are and what we will be, what is here and what is coming. And if anyone knows a thing or two about pain, well, it's, it's the Apostle Paul, isn't it? Paul knows exactly what pain is like. He certainly had his share of experiences with it. If you want to flip over with me to 2 Corinthians, I just want to read a real short section here from chapter 11. And by the way, I found in my sermon prep, uh, there's a whole lot in the whole letter of 2 Corinthians that, that uh, supplements what we're talking about today. It's almost like the same guy wrote both, <laughs> both letters and was going through the same kinds of things. But look there in, um, in chapter 11 at what he says in verses 22 through 27. He, remember, he's addressing the, the presence of so-called super apostles there in Corinth. These outsiders who've come in and claim to be, well, we're not just apostles. We're, we're the next, we're like the upgrade to apostles. And they're causing all sorts of problems. And Paul is having to defend himself. And he's comparing and contrasting himself to these super apostles. Look what he says about this here in uh, verse 22. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night in a day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I think that might be the most dangerous thing he faced of them all. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And he goes on and on, but I'll stop there. The point is, Paul can speak with authority on this experience of the pain and the suffering and the challenges of the already but not yet. Far more than we could even perhaps say we've experienced. He experienced in his own body the tension between what has been inaugurated and what will be consummated. And and more than just those inherent difficulties of living in a broken world and having a, a broken, fractured nature, those things are common to everybody. No, he's saying in addition to that, I've experienced those sufferings that come with belonging to Christ. And that's what he's talking about in this chapter. He's not talking about what is common to all people. He's talking about what is exclusive to the believer, what the believer experiences. Every single thing he he describes here in this entire lengthy paragraph here, every single thing he recounts is a direct result of his decision to follow Jesus. And that might come as a shock to us. Maybe you're a new believer today. Maybe you're under the impression that once I gave my life to Jesus, all the troubles would go away. (laughs) Things will get easy now. And it's true, some things do get easy. We do experience miraculous transformation from the inside out. I've heard Ike tell that testimony. I haven't heard it enough, Ike. I want to hear it again. 
How the Lord came and visited you in a moment and he flipped you inside out and turned your life around and you've never been the same since. Absolutely. But it doesn't mean it's smooth sailing from here on out. The Lord never promised us that following him exempted us from challenges. On the contrary, to follow Jesus is to bring upon yourself challenges that the unbeliever can never imagine. Things that you never fathomed were, would be in your future. And yet, with those challenges and with those difficulties and with those struggles, Paul says, comes the promise of glory. And that's what sets us apart from the world. Like creation, we groan because the pain is real. But like creation, we groan with anticipation. A few pages back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, verses 2 and 4, he says, We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long, we long, there's a yearning, there's a cry of the soul after Christ even. We long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and we sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. I love that expression. To be swallowed up by life. Paul can endure the tension of today because he knows it's only going to last a little while. And the glory that results will last forever. Friends, that's why it's so important for you and I to set our own individual Christian experiences within the context of the vastness of God's eternal plans and purposes in putting, piecing the cosmos back together again. I know this might come as a shock to you, but the universe doesn't revolve around you. And that can come across as real insensitive and un uncompassionate when you're in a hard, going through a hard time. I get that. But, but it is then, perhaps especially then, when we need to hear the truth that yes, your suffering is real and yes, it hurts and yes, you groan and you sigh. There's a sigh of the spirit, of the soul that is deep and real and, 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 and hard. And yet even then, we have to take our experience and, and, and picture it and view it within the context of God's grander purposes. God's doing something in this world to piece all, not just your fractured life, not just your brokenness, but the brokenness of everything. You remember that old nursery rhyme that all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't do what? They couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be sad if that was the, the, the future that creation looked forward to? That no matter what anyone, anywhere ever try to do, there's a brokenness that can never be healed. Listen, that's not, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says what all the king's horsemen and all the king's men couldn't do, God can do and is doing. He is piecing back together creation. And even the brokenness of creation somehow fits within the, the, the mystery of his permissive will. In the providence of God, he has permitted brokenness, even your brokenness. And that's because there's a purpose in it. I don't presume to know all of God's purposes. I just know he has purposes, and I know he's good, and so I need to apply his goodness and his providence in the grand picture, his great design. I need to apply that to my life and see my life in light of it. 
creation anticipates this. It stands on its tiptoes, waiting for it to happen. And Paul wants to take us who are, whose eyes, whose gaze is pointed towards the navel, and he wants to lift our chins and fix our eyes on something greater. To see the cosmic dimensions of it all. And that can be hard. But it's something that needs to happen. In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis once wrote, I wish this was on the screen, but it's okay. I'm glad we were able to, to give our, our crew a week, a week of break. But he says this, Our desires are not too strong, but too weak. <laughs> when was the last time you felt like your desires were too weak? <laughs> We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is, what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. So you got the picture there of the, the child who rather play in the mud and the dirt and the muck at the expense of what is awaiting him. And there's a lot of things that he means by this. And there's a lot of different ways we can, we can apply this to different aspects of the Christian life. But, but what I take away from this is, is it's another way of saying that Christians tend to get too preoccupied with the smallness of the here and now. That we risk missing the grandness of what is to come. God's word calls us to more. Yes, we groan. But we hope. We hope with a hope, verse 24, that was given to us when we were saved. It is a hope for liberation and renewal that has begun today and will be completed tomorrow. It is a hope that sees suffering for what it is, the inescapable prerequisite to glory. So I want to say, well, how do I know that's true? <laughs> how can we be so sure? How can we say with confidence that the, what we're going through today will be worth it in the end? And even more, even if I believe that, how am I ever going to have the strength or the fortitude or, or what it takes, the resources to get from here to there? Well, Paul has two answers to that question. The first is this. We have an intercessor. We have an intercessor. It is Christ, our high priest, not one who is removed from our sufferings. Not one who has, you know, distanced himself from, from what you're going through. No, he is one who has entered into it. He is one who has associated with it. He has entered into what you've gone through. He knows exactly what it is. He's in touch with your sufferings. Verse 34 says, he died for us and was raised to life for us. And by the way, this is a little past where we read, but it's on down in the same chapter there in chapter eight. He died for us, he was raised for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Did you notice the recurring prepositional phrase? He did these things and is doing these things for us. To which the apostle conclude, if God is for us, who could be against us? You have an intercessor who's interceding right now on your behalf, right in the direct presence of the Father. And in verse 29, Paul says, he is, a, he is the firstborn of more to come. There's promise associated with his intercession. 
Yes, you and I have joined the ranks of a multitude of sinners. Yeah, we are not morally culpable for Adam's sin. God doesn't work that way. His justice doesn't work that way. We experience the results of it. We inherit the outcome of that, but we are not morally culpable for it. And yet, you and I have indeed sinned, haven't we? And for that, we are morally culpable. We will stand account for our own actions and the things we've said and done. You and I have become active participants in the brokenness of creation, both as victims and as perpetrators. And yet, even still, by what God has done for you in Christ and, continue, and continues to do in the present, you stand justified. You, you have a right standing before God today because of Christ, because he intercedes for you, because of what he did for you. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He himself pleads on your behalf in the direct presence of the Father. But I said Paul said two things, though, didn't I? In answer to this question, how am I ever going to make it to the end? How can I be sure that I'm going to make it to the end? How do I know that what is coming is better than today and is worth all the stuff we're going through as a result? Well, yes, you have an intercessor, but you have another intercessor. It's not just one, it's two. You have another who intercedes, not in the courts of heaven, but within the theater of the human heart. It is the Holy Spirit who Paul says in verse 26, intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. Did you catch the word groaning? It's fascinating, isn't it? In fact, that might be the most fascinating verse in this chapter. This idea that not only does creation groan, and not only do you and I groan, but God himself is groaning. He too, along with his creation and his children, has an agonizing longing for the consummation of all things. He too groans for us, within us. Not out of his own you know, present state of imperfection. It's not because the Holy Spirit is lacking something like you and I are. It's not, it's not ultimately his own groanings as much as they are his groanings in his association with us. His groanings as he is in touch with and as he dwells among his people, he senses what you are sensing. It's an empathetic groaning. groaning. It's, it's our groanings imbibed by him. Isn't that fascinating? We tend to view the Spirit as this, you know, unreachable, impersonal, distant energy or, or something out there. And yet, Paul sees the, the, person, the, the personhood of the Spirit. He's one who's come alongside of you. He's come into your life. He is so interwoven, his heart with yours, that as you groan and as you suffer, as you experience that tension between the already and the, and the not yet, he participates in it with you. And he groans for you with groanings too deep for words. He personally, like Jesus, identifies with the pain of your life. And shares in your longing for freedom and redemption. And because, verse 27, because the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying in those groans. And because the Spirit pleads for us in harmony with God's own will, we can be sure that his presence and his power is sufficient. Did you hear that? Because the Spirit is so in tune with your heart and knows how to pray for you. And because he's so aligned with the, the will of the Father that he always prays in the Father's will, 
And because the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, you can be sure that his presence and his power are sufficient for you. No matter what you're facing. No matter the hardship, no matter the pain, no matter the tension, no matter the grief, no matter what, he is sufficient for you. Does that comfort you, church? (laughs) Boy, I'll tell you, it comforts me. I'm not exempt from suffering and from pain and challenges and struggles. Yes, the ones common to being in a a broken creation with a with a fractured nature, but also those that, that are specific and unique to following Jesus. I feel them too. We have them too. And I find great comfort in this passage this morning that by his spirit and by his son, God himself identifies with our sufferings, that God himself supplies our every need, that he himself is our guarantee that it's all worth the wait in the end. In verse 29, I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus is called the firstborn among many daughters, I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, meaning what? That there will be more like him. That's a promise, that what Jesus is, you and I will be like that. Sons and daughters of God by grace. It is the, the, the incarnation itself is a form of guarantee. The resurrection of Jesus is a form of guarantee that what he is, we will be if we are in him. And then in verse 23, the Holy Spirit is called a foretaste, a foretaste of that future glory. Meaning he is that glory's first installment in your life. He is like a down payment. He is like that, that earnest or that deposit that is the guarantee of final payment to come. If you are in Christ and he has given you his spirit, then you can be sure, you can be certain that in the end, God will make good on his promises. It's fascinating. We see this in Paul over and over again. Ephesians 1.14, the spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. 2 Corinthians 5, 5, God himself has prepared us for this. That is, this longing for our bodies to be swallowed up in life. That's verse 4. The very next verse, God has prepared us for this, and as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. So we can say, truly, we are saved. Truly, we are freed. Truly, we are adopted. And yet we know we are not fully saved. We are not fully freed. We are not fully adopted, but God has guaranteed as we persevere through the present that there is a final salvation. There is a final deliverance. There is a final adoption that lies ahead for us. And he guarantees us through the giving of his son and his spirit. Harvests follow first fruits. Babies follow birth pains. Glory follows suffering. This is our hope. This is our strength amidst the tension of the here and now. And so we wait, don't we? We wait. And we wait with a balance of eagerness and patience. Those are two competing forces in our lives, aren't they? 
Eagerness and patience. We tend to err on one end or the other given the circumstances, don't we? It's hard to have them both at the same time, isn't it? And yet that's exactly what we're called to here. There is a balance here that is required for your life and for mine. We are not to become so eager that we become impatient. You know, some believers have no room in their theology for for present suffering, do they? To them, suffering, in whatever form it manifests itself, is evidence that the believer lacks faith or that the believer is somehow outside of the will of God. And so as long as you have enough faith, well, then God will fix all the problems. He will heal every disease and every sickness that you have, and you'll never have to go through any burdens if you just have faith. And I say to that, well, maybe, but maybe not. Yes, I do believe that God will take away all all pain. I do believe that God will heal every disease. I do believe that God will remove every burden. Absolutely, there's promises in Scripture that say as such. And yet, how he does those things or when he does those things are not up to me. They're up to him. And they may or may not have anything at all to do with one's degree of faith. Let us not forget Paul's own testimony. If we go, testimony, if we go back to 2 Corinthians all over again, the very next chapter from where we were a moment ago, chapter 12, look again there in verses 7 through 10. To keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. It's another way of saying God permitted the enemy to pin me to the ground. Like a, he was staked to keep him grounded. And you can imagine, Paul's the recipient of this really high revelation, right? Paul saw things and heard things and experienced things that you and I could only hope to ever see or hear. And what happens when we tend to have all that knowledge and this experience? Well, that tends, we know, according to the scriptures, it tends to puff us up, doesn't it? (laughs) Paul says, well, God gave me something to keep me puffed down. But it was something painful. Oh, it hurt. It hurt. It hurt so much that, verse 8, three times even, he begged the Lord to take it away. Do you hear a lack of faith in Paul's voice there? Do you think Paul was outside the will of God? No. He begged the Lord to take it away, and every time the Lord responded, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Maybe, just maybe, our suffering plays a part in what God's actually doing in your life and in the world. Maybe it's good. I know that's church. I know it's so easy to say that in the comforts of this (laughs) warm, safe, dry, (laughs) clean space. I get it. It's so easy to say it, but it doesn't make it less true. And maybe the hardship, maybe the struggle, maybe what you're going through isn't because you don't have enough faith or because you're outside of the will of God. Maybe it's exactly within the will of God. And so Paul concludes, now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses (laughs) so that the power of Christ can work through me. That is why not I complain, not that I just keep my mouth shut, Verse 10, that's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and the hardships and the persecutions and the troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
That is the mark of a mature faith, if I ever saw it. That is the mark of one who, whose gaze has been raised to, to the cosmic dimensions of what God is doing. That is one who's able to place his own individual, it's real, but it's just his own unique, subjective experience of God within the vastness of God's designs. It's one who knows the heart of the designer and trusts it completely. It is one who is yielded totally to the master's will. There has to be room, church, for suffering in the life of the believer in our theology. Yes, we pray that God removes suffering. We always pray for it, and we believe God will. But the Bible calls us not to expect it to be taken away in our own way, in our own timing. No, the Bible challenges us and exhorts us to be patient in our waiting. To be patient. God will not adjust his timetable or the ordering of his providence just because we don't enjoy waiting and groaning. In fact, oftentimes those things are essential to the greater things that he's producing in us. And that, by the way, is the very next verse from what I read in Romans 8. That's, 20, that's 28 and following. And we'll get to that. But that's, that's exactly what his next statement is. Oftentimes the things that are, we think worst in our lives are the things that are essential for the greater good of our lives. So we are to not become so eager that we become impatient, but we must also not become so patient that we lose our expectation. And by patient, I mean just content with life as it is. Or maybe just not even content. We're just, we just resolved ourselves to, to uh, this life is all, that, this is all we can expect. We, we become so just dulled and and. What's, there's a word that's escaping me here. We're just so acclimated to the, the brokenness that we lose that sense of longing for, for renewal. We allow the present sufferings to eclipse future glory. You know, I had a, I didn't get permission to share this, so I'm going to apologize in advance. It's not you, Becca. My wife's like, Ugh. I'm not talking about my wife. <clears throat> I know better than that. I had a conversation with Debbie Wednesday night after revival, right here. Chuck, Pastor Chuck invited the whole church to come up and just ended the evening, the, the whole um, revival series with just this beautiful expression of our unity together and there was hugs and prayer and tears and it just was so sweet. I so appreciated that. And I found myself on the edge over here and Debbie and I had a moment to share. And I, I know a lot of you know, but many of you don't. Debbie has been experiencing a, a pretty deep, dark valley in her life. I mean, a, a, the type that many of us, if not most of us, have never experienced before. And do you know what she's found in that deep, dark valley? Or maybe I should say, do you know who she has found there? In the valley of the shadow of death? She found the one who comforts with his shepherding presence. And against all logic and against all reason and all common sense, her testimony is the suffering, this is her words, has drawn me closer to Jesus. It's drawn me closer to him. 
And she knows by faith. I heard it from her mouth. She knows by faith and through the promises of the word of God and by the, by the aid and the presence of the Holy Spirit that there is a glory to come that is worth longing for. It's the anchor of her soul in her time of deepest despair. She's not content with this at all. She knows that there's more than this to come, and so she waits with an eager expectation, patient, we can't force the hand of God. And God has permitted some, somewhere in the mysteries of his providence for her and this family to go through a suffering that I pray never befalls my family. And there has, there's a, a patience that, that is required that can only come by the supernatural aid of the Holy Spirit. But she's not so resigned to the fact that this is all we ever have. To, that's Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, vanity. No, there's more than that. There's, there's glory. Glory will follow your suffering, Debbie. And you know it. In the words of Octavius Winslow, one second of that glory will extinguish a lifetime of suffering. <laughs> what, a, what a promise. That the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The moment you see Jesus face to face, I promise those tears will be wiped from your eyes. The scriptures say they will. He will wipe every tear. And you will join the saints in heaven and on earth in the refrain, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Because by his sufferings, we've been healed. Glory follows suffering. God longs for that day along with you and I, friends. And he's given us his son and his spirit to associate with our sufferings, to intercede on our behalf, and to help us in our weakness. Be eager and be patient. Glory is coming. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the promise of your word. We thank you for the power of your spirit. We thank you for the work of your son. Father, thank you that, that you have made us your sons and daughters by grace through faith. And yet we know that what we are now is just a taste of what we will be. And as we, as we take step by step in this journey from here till then, we cannot do it without you. We cannot, on our own strength, wait patiently. We cannot, without the power of God, see the, that what we long for is worth the wait. Lord, may we rest in the promise here this morning that he who began a good work in you will, will bring it unto completion. That what you are doing, we are works in progress and there's a completed dimension to that work, but there's an ongoing dimension to that work, and we know there will be a final dimension to that work. And so, Lord, come and be our strength. Be our shield. Be our defender. Guide us and direct us. May we run the race and finish it well, which, by the way, includes lots of bumps and bruises along the way. Help us to see them for what they are, to not push your hand 
force your hand, to not expect the finality before it's here, but to also anticipate and wait for it and look forward to it with, with longing. Lord, all these things, we need your help. And we know that you are there to, to offer it. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.